and welcome to another wonderful episode. I know we don't do the alliterative thing anymore, so we are here for another episode of Got the Runs, the podcast with all of the sexual chemistry of two of the same person, <laughs> but, but that, that's but actually different ages. <laughs> that actually is kind of us when you think about it. Oh. Two of the same person. Two of the same person, but from different timelines. Yes, precisely. <laughs> Do you think, have we gotten any feedback about our voices being the exact same? Only from me. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll press on regardless. <laughs> If you do have some thoughts about our voice sounding the same, you can always tweet at us. At I'm opening the plug bag early. At got the Ru- got the runs pod is that yep. our Twitter? <laughs> sure is. And you can email us at got the runs pod at gmail dot com. Just wanted to get that out of the way up top. You know, running this, you're high fiving me. Yeah, you said up top. <laughs> oh, I see. Well. Today we are, of course, pressing on, really coming to the to the conclusion, quite honestly. Uh, I never thought we'd get here of uh, our Brian K. Vaughn miniseries. And we are, well, we're not closing things out this episode, but we are opening the closing with the book Paper Girls, written, of course, by Brian K. Vaughn, artwork by Cliff Chang, coloring by Matt Wilson, I, I, you know, I want to, I want to make sure we get all the pertinent details out since, you know, we're what, 25 episodes in? Mm-hmm. I feel like we should, we can start, uh, figuring out a structure for that. Why not? I mean, if we're getting it all out there, let's acknowledge the important lettering work by Jared K. Fletcher. Sure. The Fletch man. Mm-hmm. Some of Fletch himself. Him. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was published from October 2015 to July 2019. Our issue specifically, were published from October 2015 to October 2016. So we're like in the middle of saga, basically, at this point. Yes. Smack dab. So like, you know, compared to... Well, I feel like we talk about this literally every episode, but mm-hmm. compared to like his late 2000s where he's writing like five books simultaneously, he has pared things down a little bit. Yeah, there's a, there's a stretch, I think, where he's working on maybe like one or two months where he's doing Saga, Paper Girls, and The Private Eye all simultaneously. Um, but yeah, when you compare with like the months where he had like Runaways, Ultimate X-Men, Y, and Ex Machina all coming out at the same time, it's very, very different from that for sure. Yeah. Um, published by Image as well. So he's yep. sort of uh, he's living in an image world as some might say. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing this episode. What do you think of how I've been doing so far? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Three minutes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, keep uh, keep on keeping on, I say. Well, I'll find my stride. I'm um, sure. So I wanted to talk about Cliff Chang because uh, he seems like a big deal. I don't really know what his deal is. The artwork in this is certainly uh, quite distinctive, makes a lot of use of sort of monochromatic... I guess that's more of a coloring thing, mm-hmm. but monochromatic coloring and sort of tinted coloring style. So what what's the deal with Cliff Chang? And I guess Matt Wilson as well. Yes. Uh, well, Cliff Chang, it's funny you say that because I also do think of him as kind of a big deal. He is right now, I would say, like kind of in the superstar artist category. But when I went to like go back and look, like he hasn't worked on as much stuff as I would have thought. And he actually came in as an editor. He was an editor at Vertigo was how he started his career. His first collaboration with Brian K. Vaughn, as we all will recall, 
was on the Swamp Thing Winter Special or maybe the Secret Files. It was on one of the like tertiary Swamp Thing books. Mm. And we um, all remember that, of course. And we all remember it. Um, and he tells like, Vaughn tells a funny story about it where he was like working with an artist, but she also had like a full-time animation job and she was falling behind and they were like, she's not going to be able to do it, but don't worry. We've got this editor <laughs> who's prepared to step up to the plate, and he was like, "Uh huh, <laughs> okay." <laughs> well, you're always you're always talking about how Brian K. Vaughn needs an editor, so yeah, truly. Um, so yeah, he was he was an editor originally. He got that job because he had been helping with the layouts for that book. So he was just kind of, they were just kind of like you've you've already got a head start here, so just draw it. Uh, and then of course it was great because he's great, and and Vaughn ever since has been you know, rubbing his hands together and searching for the opportunity to collaborate with him again, which didn't come for some time. But apart from that, like, in terms of internal art, like he did a short run on Green Arrow and Black Canary, he worked on uh, the Vertigo Human Target title, which uh, as of this recording, like, they just are launching a new sort of prestige black label Human Target limited series written by Tom King. So that might have a little bit of name recognition but i think the main thing he would have done art wise prior to this was wonder woman with brian azarello he was the artist on the new 52 wonder woman book commonly regarded as one of a handful of books from the new 52 era that are still worth reading today <laughs> really yes yes and uh, and kind of launched him into more sort of broad recognition and then his next big project after that really is paper girls uh, and then since then you know he's he's worked on a few things uh he's i think currently putting out at dc he's doing like a i don't want to like <laughs> reductively call it old lady catwoman um but he's kind of doing old lady catwoman <laughs> that he is both writing and drawing oh. uh i learned i learned while i was looking into this that he's a harvard man uh with a joint degree in english and uh visual art so he well suited one assumes to uh to write and draw his own material yeah, degree in visual art and English. I'll bet he is a joint man. <laughs> All right, pretty good. I liked it. Yeah. I, what's So people don't like the new 52, huh? Not to yeah. go off on a tangent, but oh, I feel no, like please. that sort of roughly coincides with the time that I like was sort of falling out of comics, like out of regularly following comics. And I don't know if that's a coincidence or if the two might be connected, but... People, people don't like that? Yeah, people don't like it. Um, at the time, it was kind of like mixed sort of right from the get-go. So for those who are listening who might not know, the New 52 was initiative and initiative that DC Comics did in like 2011, I believe was when it launched, where they were basically like, we're resetting all of continuity back to basics. I believe what they came up with was like, it's going to start, everyone has been around, or like it's been five years since Batman and Superman started operating. And all of the continuity is like thrown out unless we say otherwise, sort of. And so the idea was like, almost like an Ultimate Universe style relaunch where it was like, you know, the core concepts, the familiar ideas are all going to be there, but we're going to have like, we're not going to be bound by continuity. We'll have some latitude to tell new stories, put fresh spins on things, you know. All, all these same sort of ideas that sort of motivated the ultimate universe. Now, the problem with it was when they launched the ultimate universe, they didn't do it by like shuttering the mainstream Marvel universe. So the fan base that they've been cultivating for like 40 years, who 
makes up the core of their market wasn't just like left without the sort of familiar titles to buy. And the other issue of it, and like DC has like been the the one that sort of like really rests on that history. Like the fact that Superman is the first superhero and is still sort of like a cornerstone of the universe. That's like a big deal for, for a lot of DC fans. So the idea of just sort of like throwing it all out the window and starting fresh, I think was off putting to people at the time I was like pretty excited about it. Like when they were rolling out the slate of titles I remember beforehand, they announced we're launching 52 titles, which is probably too many, but (laughs) they're going with 52. And I remember looking at them and being like, I'm having a hard time keeping my pull list under 40 of these because like that there's that many of them that I'm interested in reading. I would say within six months, I had that down to about 10. (laughs) And by, by year, the end of year one, it was down to like five. And I think that was the experience of a lot of people. There were some like kind of red flag issues where like Grant Morrison and Jeff Johns were both in the middle of like multi-year epic stories for Batman and Green Lantern. And so they were like, we're resetting continuity. And people were like, well, what about your two best-selling titles with superstar creators who've been like redefining the the like mythos of those characters? And they were like, uh, oh yeah, all, all that stuff happened. All that stuff still happened. And then people were like, well, so wait, Batman has been around for five years, but there's been four Robins and one of them is his 13 year old son. And they were like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it got off on shaky ground and you know, there's some, there's some like well-liked titles. I know Scott Snyder's Batman run, uh, which was one of the launch titles is well-regarded Grant Morrison's action comics. Uh, people like, uh, Jeff Lemire on Animal Man, Snyder on Swamp Thing, and Azarello on Wonder Woman. Those are kind of some of the highlights. And there were some like weird little books in there too, like I Frankenstein, uh, or no, I Vampire and Frankenstein Agent of Shade. <laughs> yes, that is two... that is one of the titles that really has stuck with in my mind. <laughs> yeah, those are those are two books that like I think only made it to issue ten, but like now when people look back, they're like. I can't believe we got like however many issues we got of like Justice League International that was bad and <laughs> I Vampire couldn't get past number 10. Um but yeah, so so they certainly were playing fast and loose in those days and uh and that lasted until they were like, "All right, we made a mistake. Rebirth. <laughs> we're bringing back the old continuity." There's I some bitterness like... as well for some of the titles that did get cut off as well, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. I feel like more than but more than Marvel, certainly, D- it feels like DC like has a universe-altering reset, or at least like an editorial reset mm-hmm. every like two years. It feels like they, yeah, they definitely like Crisis on Infinite Earths. Of course, is the big one and sort of like the OG as far as those things go. But then like Infinite Crisis did it again. Fifty Two kind of did it again. Zero Hour kind of did it again. Multiversity more recently kind of did it again. New Fifty Two came out of Flashpoint, which did it again. Rebirth came out of like Doomsday Clock, which sort of did it again. Yeah, they reset their universe a lot or do like big sort of like continuity shakeups. Marvel has done it like once. Like the Jonathan Hickman Secret Wars series ostensibly was sort of like an infinite or a crisis on infinite earth right. style event where they were like, all the worlds have been destroyed and now they're remade. But other than like a few little corners, it was like, it was remade exactly like it was before, except now Miles Morales is here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly, truly, it seems like 
Secret Wars was mainly like a vehicle to put Miles Morales in the mainstream Marvel yeah, universe. Yeah, there definitely were like three characters who they were like, these Ultimate guys uh, are still are still money makers. We're kind of done with this universe, but we don't want to lose those characters. And they're like all Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like it's Spider Man. Nick Fury and Ultimate Reed Richards are the ones who they're kind of attached to. Right. Yeah, I, I'm just reading here about that. When the New 52 launched, it had two female creators, <laughs> Gail Simone and Amy Reader, an yep. alternating artist on Batwoman who did not debut till issue six. And at 2011 Comic-Con, when Dan Didio was asked by a fan about the drop in female creators, he responded by saying, what do those numbers mean to you? What do they mean to you? Who should we be hiring? Tell me right now. Who should we be hiring right now? <laughs> Tell me. So just Dan, really put the gun away. <laughs> really cool vibes coming out from Dan on that one. <laughs> big, big. Uh, the numbers, Mason. What do they mean? Uh, <laughs> vibes from Dan Didio. Maybe it was an elaborate uh, Call of Duty joke. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah, black that? ops. Uh, some black ops viral marketing. It's <laughs> a great thought. That was. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> But let's talk about Paper Girls. Oh, do let's. We'll, we'll give, you know, like we always do in every episode, we'll give the quick plot synopsis. Um, on our previous episode with Emilio Diaz, of course, it did not go as well as uh, as well as it might have. Uh, but this time we're really going to get it. And especially I'm going to get it because I read these a week ago. And so I can definitely really get a handle on exactly what happened in this book not to like completely derail it before we even start but (laughs) (laughs) but you have some more to say with the new 52 i mean i do but we'll we'll save it for another time um i read these issues yesterday but on like four hours of sleep and so like every time the time travel stuff like started to be part of it basically every time like the four main characters weren't on the page i was sort of like oh oh you so, were you were fainting, I, drifting off, and then being awoken. One of the most classic bits I enjoy <laughs> is someone who's nodding off the... <laughs> yeah, so I might have a hard time uh, telling you exactly what's happening in some elements of this as well. Well, that's maybe like... And maybe that's the springboard of our discussion is that I feel like it's a, it's a bit of an issue. And this is something we have talked about. We talked about it a lot during Saga, but this is a book where I really just wish that it was about paper girls. <laughs> like, <laughs> just a slice of life book about, like, these yeah. four 12-year-olds. Yeah, I could, I mean, I will say, like, the time travel conceit allows him to do some good, like, emotional and character-driven stuff. Like, uh, like old Aaron meeting young Aaron, again, obviously, is, like, great stuff. Um, the, like, reveal that Mac dies in, like, three years from leukemia is awesome. And, like, obviously that's all, you know, the the fruit of the time travel story. But, like, anytime the grandfather character is on the page, I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not even interested in finding out what this dude is about. Or, like, when they're off on their, like, when Aaron is off on her own with, like, the two the two future teens i'm just like oh man get her back with the characters that i actually can't give like a single rip about yeah there's maybe a different like a smaller story to be told perhaps because you're right it does feel like those emotional beats are like the parts that are effective but so little of the co- like it becomes more about that i think over this chunk of 10 issues but it feels like 
it's sort of like, like we said with Saga, like it's sacrificing the most enjoyable parts, which is like the dynamic between the characters and the dialogue between the characters in favor of like an insane story, which like has, has not been fully revealed to us at the point no, at true. which we are reading, but also like is so crazy and like it's completely opens, demented. Yeah. It opens with like pterodactyls flying out of a temporal vortex onto like a, a decimated hellscape in which like everyone else has been raptured. Yes. Which, which also is like, and again, this is uh this is similar to things we have uh, complained about at length in Sokka, but I'm just like, how does the time machine work? Where did everybody go? Like, I haven't, I've read further into the comic than we have, but I haven't finished it and it was a while ago. So I like, maybe they answer those questions later, but it, it again, it's just like, so wait, like why is Max like stepmom still there, but everyone else isn't. And then like, did she run away or did she just get vanished? Like I, I have a, a hard time following a lot of like the, the like wackier time travel-y, like that side of the story is like kind of hard to follow to begin with. And then like, when you're not invested in it at all and sleep deprived, <laughs> it's like so hard to even like want to pay enough attention to try and figure some of those things out. Well, the good news is that every character in this speaks coherently. <laughs> None of them speak like a crazy time patois. I like I like the time patois because at least you can figure it out. When they use yes. like, you know, a completely different character set. I mean, I'm the kind of person who normally is like, Oh, I wonder if there's like a, a like translation guide out there. Like Dupe the X Man. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh, I know. He's, yeah, he's like a floating green potato who speaks his own language, but it of course is like a one to one. Like every symbol corresponds with like an English character. So, and there's always like a dupe like translation guide, so you can go and figure out what his dialogue actually is. And I'm the kind of person who is like, I mean, I know what he's saying basically from context, but I am going to go and figure out exactly what he's saying, even though it's going to take me like 10 minutes to translate each page. But I just don't care to do that for this. Like, I don't I don't know if there is a translation. And I'm just like, I don't care what these guys are saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it is. I, I, I think I do care what those guys are saying, which is maybe a problem because like it is frustrating when like you know, a, a significant portion of dialogue from, like, a certain set of characters is just unintelligible. And, like, obviously there's stuff that's, like, contextually is going to be filled in. But, like, when the when your greatest strength is the dialogue, in my mind, then, like, <laughs> putting that kind of restriction on yourself just feels like you're, like, it's an unnecessary restriction. Right. Well, I, I will say, though, he did... I guess it's kind of like, I don't know, it, maybe it's part of like the rich sci-fi element here, but he did this more effectively in another book, also with Marcos Martin on Panel Syndicate called Barrier, where the theme is like language barriers. That's like what the comic is about. And there's all kinds of language that is like untranslated. And there's like a lot of Spanish speaking characters who you never get translations for what they're saying. And it's sort of like the point of the comic is like about like how we communicate and like the 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 barriers that language presents and the like creative ways of overcoming them and like figuring out what people are saying, even when you don't actually know what they're saying. But I'm like, if you're gonna, that's like a good idea. But that's not what like this book is about at all. Right. It is certainly not. And speaking of what this book is about, so we'll, we'll give a pl brief plot summary. So you have Aaron Tiang, 
who is uh, a new a newly dubbed paper girl in this town of Stony Stream in what's the year 1988 yes 1988 um and on her first day on the job, correct? Or one no, of no? Like, I think she's week. been. It's it's her first like hell day, which is the morning after Halloween. I'm not sure if it's her first week, but it's like it seems to me like she's at least got the rhythm and the routine from like the first couple pages. But she hasn't been doing it long enough that any of the other paper girls know who she is, and they all call her right. new girl. Right, exactly. So she meets up with these other paper girls, uh, Mac, KJ, and Tiffany. And then they are basically thrust into some, like, crazy apocalypse it's situation. Like intergenerational time war. Yeah, well, yes. It's eventually revealed to be that. But, like, I like they experience, like, basically the world is being, like, obliterated in some way. Yeah. And they are... Like, is the idea sort of, I guess, and maybe these questions will be answered, but is the idea sort of that, like, this is a splinter unit, or, like, this basically, like, that this part of the timeline is being erased or something like that? Like, I'm not quite sure what we're meant to be taking from this. So... If anything. Yeah. My my understanding of it, because they do say a few times there's only one timeline. Like, there's no alternate universes or anything like that. There's one timeline. But if you're, like, smart and careful, you can, like, overwrite certain parts. So the youths of tomorrow have, like, come back in time and are taking stuff out of this timeline. And then the olds come in and are, like, now we'll make sure that, like, you didn't screw it up too badly. Right. So, yes, it is. And this that's the big sort of theme of the book is... This conflict between the young and the old, whether that's, like, this more physical direct conflict or, you know, just sort of dealing with the ideas of aging and sort of the ideas of, like, you know, not not becoming who you wanted to be or, like, you know, the ways in which aging maybe disillusions you or things of that nature but <laughs> that's that's a small portion of the book because most of it is about like this weird this big worm is fighting this other big worm <laughs> yes this crazy time war which is then causes them to be sent to the 21st century like more or less present day right contemporaneous yes. with the books publishing yes 2016 those poor fools they don't even know <laughs> Yeah, and so that that came out before the election happened, right? Uh, good question. Because, I think because this set of issues was published from October 2015 to October 2016, so it must have. And it, yeah, and it was before, uh, like it would have been written, of course, before that. And it's not like even, yeah. So so yes, he he called it. <laughs> yeah, so it's not specifically a Trump indictment, but maybe I feel like the writing was maybe on the wall to some extent in like mid 2016 that things were not going well. And so yes, they end up in the 21st century. They meet up with the adult version of Aaron. Uh they later meet up with another version of Aaron who is sort of part of this like time traveling militia. But also like what's her whole thing like she uh, they introduce her but also they introduce her and are like don't trust her and then she tells her backstory which is kind of complicated but I'm like is that real? And like, which team are you even on, so to speak? Like, is she one of the teenagers? Or is she one of the like, pod people that the olds have? 
Yes, I think it it always felt to me like she was a teenager, mainly because like I guess she, she is often... pretty like scornful of like grown ups, quote unquote. Yes, but this big yes, the big thing you sort of talked alluded to earlier was that Aaron, the younger, the original Aaron, Aaron Prime, sort of pulls this what field hockey stick out of the ether. Yes, uh, which has a message from KJ who has been, who sort of gets, like, teleported away, and they don't know what's happened to her. And, in fact, neither do we, because when KJ comes back, she still has her field hockey stick with nothing written on it, so... Right. Uh, I, it's time travel stuff. And and that this hockey stick has an inscription on it which tells Aaron Prime not to trust, quote, other Aaron, but the whole thing is it's unclear whether it's referring to the adult Aaron that she has met in 2016, or if it's this, like, third time traveler Aaron. Uh, and the other element of it is that the adult Aaron has no memory of anything that has happened in 1988. Yes. But she does have a scar from it, right? Yes. From when she got shot. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then the this set of issues concludes with them jumping into... Uh, a hole into like a mushroom a folding it's called it really reminds me of uh the conclusion of the 2020 sonic the hedgehog film <laughs> where dr robotnik is uh on an alternate in an alternate planet or universe and so it seems like they are either in the are they in the past don't spoil it i guess uh no well we get the last splash page that i think indicates they're in the far future because they have like mm. It's like the, the, what's that hill called in England that's like St. George yeah. fighting the dragon? It's like that, except it's like Bahamut worshipping the Apple logo, <laughs> which is good. I like that. <laughs> this is like, this is where I run into it is like, there's elements of this that I really like. And like the like, I don't know that I, I love that. But then I'm like, but I don't care about like this church flying church that worships technology even though i do like this hill that worship tech not worships technology yes it's it's the vaughn thing again where it's like he he loves to allude to like contemporary events in like interesting ways and sort of recontextualize the symbology and like pop culture of the of the modern day in like new ways which you know can can be interesting sometimes and be funny sometimes but then also sometimes like falls a little flat, especially you know reading it now years after its publishing. You're of course referring to I believe the the CERN or there's many of these. They're called hill figures, mm -hmm. but one of the most famous ones is the CERN Abbas giant, which is uh, a giant mm -hmm. <laughs> carved into this hill uh, who has a very prominent erect penis. Uh, so I just wanted to <laughs> bring that, <laughs> that up. That certainly seems to be what Vaughn is alluding to. I'm going to look for what I'm thinking of. I'm, I'll send you the link to that, uh, just so you can look at it for yourself. And the Bahamut does sort of have... He, it's maybe a tail, but he certainly has something dangling oh, between no, his legs. Oh, that's no, that's a peen, absolutely. <laughs> but, oh, no, well, never mind. We'll get, you can look at issue 10 yourself and get into the physiology of it. But, uh, yeah, so that's basically what the book is about <laughs> i feel i've i already feel uh at a loss now because of how crazy <laughs> this book is 
you're now, I assume, looking at the Cerna boss giant. Uh, it could be. I might. I might well be. Yeah, it's it's just so. It's got so many high points. There's so, so much of it. Points. I think is really the thing because so you have the '80s aesthetic and the cultural references. I think the Cold War is certainly. Like, uh, something that gets brought up a lot, like, we open on mm-hmm. Aaron having a dream about, like, the yeah, Challenger the, disaster. The Vanian dream is back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sort of that idea of, like, the looming specter of death that, like, loomed over the Cold War. Like, the feeling that even as a child, and I think, you know, we're not children of the Cold War by any stretch of the imagination, but... The idea that, like, death is constantly looming over you, it's constantly a consideration in your life, you believe that there is a real chance that you could be destroyed by, like, a nuclear weapon at any given time. That sort of, like, fear, and it's not even paranoia, I think it's just, like, fear of death, which is sort of, like, introduced into the lives of, like, children of the Cold War, uh, like, at a very early age. That's definitely a prominent idea throughout this. Mm-hmm. So you have that, like, you have both, like, the 80s aesthetic elements of it and also, like, the 80s thematic elements of it. Uh, Reagan shows up at Reagan one point. Reagan does show up, yes. <laughs> Total shocker, this comes out before Stranger Things, which I feel like that's, like, the obvious point of reference now is to be like, Paper Girls, what's that? Oh, it's kind of like a Stranger Things style, like, yeah. 80s kids get into, like, a weird sci-fi adventure, but it's really about, like, them growing up as 80s kids. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But, like, the thing, yeah, there's just so much of it that, like, I think it, it sort of comes across in the way that we're talking about it already is, like, it feels very unmoored because we open with this, like, paper... Like, we open with the idea of, like, she is a paper delivery girl. And that's, like, an aesthetic that only really gets carried over for, like, a few issues and is also, like, in the letters page. I don't know if you read the letters of this, but, like, it's an entire constructed letters thing where it's like yeah. the new like the national newspaper guild or whatever like newspaper delivery person's guild yeah i remember that being a thing because i have the single issues for like the first probably the first like 20 and i remember it being a thing like you could write in and like get like a newspaper delivery person's guild like card and von talks sometimes about how like people still will like pull theirs out and show them to him at like cons and stuff which is fun but like yeah it's it's the paper element for sure has been uh, low key so far, although Aaron still works at the paper, uh, you know. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And then there's these elements of feminism, certainly, because obviously all the lead characters are female. And the like one of the notable things about Mac is that she is, as you mentioned earlier, I think the first female paper delivery person yep. in like that town. And so there's an element of that as well, like the sort of role of like women breaking boundaries. I'm sorry, I've just learned. So Paper Girls is being made into a TV show. I'm not sure if you were yes. aware of that. I did know. I've just learned that Ali Wong was cast as Adult Aaron. And yeah. I love it. That, that tracks. That tracks really strongly, actually. I mean, there's no no dearth of good... I guess they're, they're what, 12 years old or 13 yeah. or something like that? I guess... You would have to maybe age them up a little bit. I think I think they're playing twelve. I believe they're they're sticking with it, right? But I'm saying like 
there's no shortage of like good Asian actresses right now. That oh, you right, to play from. adult Aaron. Yes, I'm just thinking of like the Netflix, um, like the to all the boys. What's her name? Uh, Condor, Lana Condor. Yes, uh, the voice of Kauru in <laughs> Rilakkuma and Kauru. Excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> have I not told you about this? No. Wait, she's an Alita. Uh, fascinating. Uh, so R- Rilakkuma and Kauru. I mm. want to talk about this briefly because everyone should <laughs> Please watch do. this show. So Rilakkuma is like. He's like a Hello Kitty type figure. Like he is a he's a teddy bear who like basically was like created as a piece of merchandise. Uh and there is this show on Netflix which is I it's stop motion animated called Rilakkuma and Kauru which is about like Rilakkuma and Ko Rilakkuma who is basically the female Rilakkuma and Kiritori who is like a a bird of some kind. Uh, and they all, like, live with Kaoru, who is, like, a 20-something working woman in Japan. And she is, like, going through, like, all, like, the foibles and anxieties of, like, being a 20-something working woman. But then also just, like, lives with these, like, toy toy bears. <laughs> and, and they, like, comfort her. But a lot of, like, very childlike. So you can imagine that this really hits the spot for me. That sounds deranged. <laughs> It's somewhat deranged for sure. Uh, there's an episode where Kori Lakuma communicates with an alien, uh, and she is taken up into an alien spaceship where they become friends. And they I'm taking a buttons. deep, steadying breath. Uh, just look up Kori Lakuma. I have, I have a Kori Lakuma uh, plush that I received as a gift, which is one oh, of my wait, most treasured possessions. That's, that's what that is. Yeah, you know her. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Kori Lakuma. Uh-huh. Um, let's talk about the writing of the 12 year old girls. What? You're just going to. Yes, I am. Absolutely, I am. Because, boy, Brian, you've up. come a long way since Runaways. <laughs> it's all, yes. all I can say. <laughs> Bear in mind that these characters are one year older than Molly, the 11 year old runaway. It's just shocking to <laughs> like how how much more developed and like nuanced and like he's really found the the like sweet spot I feel like for these characters where it's like they're not stupid and, and like you know they're smart they have like good ideas they're occasionally like kind of naive in how they like process certain things or like they'll they'll kind of expose like you know the they're like terror at certain things like i'm thinking of um one of them one of them like really freaks out about the gun at one point in a way that i'm like yeah that's a way that makes sense for like a 12 year old girl to react but also doesn't mean that they have to act like they're like four (laughs) the rest of the time where like he's he's just nailed that balance where they're like almost adult but like not not quite yeah i mean they're i think they maybe do read like i said like they i think they do read a little older Mm mm-hmm than what they are like i think maybe it makes especially i mean like maybe it's just a situation where like mac is sort of portrayed as being more mature or at least like acting more mature than her age but like Mm -hmm. they do definitely i think sometimes read as like 15 rather than 12 which maybe isn't a huge difference but feels like one for like when you're in that sort of age range but i definitely agree i mean like (laughs) it's very clear that 
if you compare it to Molly, that it's night and day. And, you know, like, I think it's, it's, it's just cool that a white male writer is making decisions to, like, consciously, and again, like, this gets into issues we've talked about literally throughout this whole series about, like, representation and, like, who should be writing whom. Um, and it's, it's interesting, actually, that this is, he has, you know, of his four major works, kind of, his ongoing series, that this is the one of the, it's not, this is not one of the ones that is co-created with a female artist. Mm-hmm. Because of the decision to have all, basically all the lead characters be female, except, like, some of the time war people. Right. But often, like, you'll go through a whole issue with strictly female characters, which I think is, like... Yeah, for obvi- sure. It's very obviously a conscious choice and, like, just a very interesting one I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly... Yeah, the, the, it's a diverse cast for sure uh, because we have Aaron, who is Korean, I believe. Oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're, okay. you're, you're looking to me for support. I am, and I am, I am looking for you to support. I, th- I think she's Korean. And then Mac, who obviously is kind of like a blue-collar white girl, uh, I think irish most likely uh and then kj who is jewish and tiffany who is black and and has wasted many hours gaming she is an epic gamer and it's important to have gamer representation i think and and that's it was brave of brian to include her Mm -hmm. um that's really a step forward (laughs) yeah one of our more persecuted groups for sure so it's nice that uh that gamers get some love. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you allude to that sequence, which, like, I think that is very emblematic of, like, what this book does, like, at its best. Um, sort of, like, portraying that, like, adolescent existence and, like, the and, like it sort of, like, really runs the gamut of emotions. Like, there is, like, the sort of ah, so carefree that, like, she is able to... So this is a sequence where we basically see it's, like... It has a name, right? Like, Arkanoid? It's Brick Breaker. Yeah, yeah. It does does have a name, and it is Brick Breaker. (laughs) (laughs) That, like, yes, we see this whole extended sequence uh, when she touches, like, a time beast of her, like... (laughs) spending hours and hours on end playing this game yeah yeah we see it's i think it's like a sort of the summation of like i think that sequence and that sort of activity represents like everything about being a kid where it's like it's exciting it's like in some respects you get nostalgic like the idea that you had like basically unlimited free time to like do the things that you wanted to do and like could just lose yourself in something like that for such a long period of time mm-hmm. it has like the sort of petty frustration of it yeah I, I think there's also like an interesting like indictment of nostalgia there too where like it's fun to like look at that sequence and be like wow she loved that game so much she played it but then when she talks about it she's like my life flashed before my eyes and it was so boring <laughs> like yeah exactly. i didn't even like that game that much and and i think it is like yeah it's funny to think about how like yeah, there's games that I have spent, like, so much time playing, and, like, I don't even really like them that much, <laughs> but it's just, like, but I look back fondly at a time when, like, I could just do that, even though I'm, like, but that game was, like, wasn't even that good. Like, I didn't even have that much fun playing it. Yeah, and that's why I think, like, it really, like, it encapsulates every element of it, because mm-hmm. there are, like, there are positive and negative readings of it, like, 
is it like exciting that she is able to like delve into this so deeply or is it like an indictment of like how bored she must have been that she did nothing but play this game for hours and hours like i think that sort of is a very and it's a totally wordless sequence yeah i i think it's kind of like ties into the coming of age thing of like sort of like realizing how thoughtlessly you've been moving through life if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. Where she's, she's sort of like, I've been, I've been like a passive participant in like my own existence. And it's sort of a turning point for her character as far as what we've seen so far, where she's sort of like, I'm done like doing that. It's time for me to be like active and, and like, you know, being someone with agency and like able to make decisions and initiate things in my own life. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah, and like that whole sequence is told wordlessly. And there is like a very, there's something to it where it never portrays like I feel like another comic might have a sequence like this where it's showing like it's like someone's mom is sick and they die and like we see the whole sequence of like their life that's like portrayed in the same way Mm -hmm. and it it never really had like and those sequences can obviously be very effective but I think the fact that it doesn't like try and do that like it doesn't necessarily like reach for what might be melodrama Mm -hmm. i think really it shows what i want out of the comic that i never really get which is just like like i think there is like a place for this being like you know similar to the zot earth stories where it's like this is just about like existence in this time and maybe that's just not the kind of story that vaughn wants to write i suppose Mm -hmm. but the the idea of a comic especially with this art because i do really love the art and i love the way the coloring works that like it makes use of the that like monochromatism and those this the the color palette it uses yeah, it's got a sort of film over over those segments for sure yeah and so it's like it was exciting to me like the idea that you would have like vaughn dialogue with these characters and like you know I, i'm not necessarily super a huge fan of like the 80s pastiche which is sort of like dominated <laughs> culture but although again i will say like it does kind of predate a lot of the like not not everything yeah. obviously and like you know i think it speaks to sort of a broader sort of like it's time for us to like really get the like 80s nostalgia out of our system that this this is really only a few like it's less than a year before stranger things and like kind of like right in the era where all the like clamoring revival for like 80s properties and that kind of thing starts to really take off but i transformers i think is kind of like the start of that era yeah yeah in more like updated for modern times way and less but then like you have like bumblebee is a good example of like yeah that's more directly channeling the 80s energy of it there was something I want to talk about, but I've forgotten. That's all right. I'll talk about uh, Matt Wilson instead, who is, uh, you know, we, we've, we've been talking about the colors and this certainly is um, a good example of his work. He's someone who I think like there's a there's a lot of like talk. I think we talked about it in an episode at some point, maybe in Swamp Thing. I was complaining about like the, the habit of like recoloring older work. Matt Wilson is like one of the the few colorists I feel like where I would actually trust him to recolor old work because he uses a palette that is like, it's not flat in the same way necessarily that like truly like vintage, like old school, like the, you know, the dot printer technology colors are like flat, flat, but he definitely like has never been as like, as into sort of like the gradient as, 
as some of the other sort of his contemporaries, I guess, uh, is is how I would put it, for someone who got his start in kind of like the early to mid 2000s. Some of the other books he has colored that I think, you know, would stand out his his colors particularly would be like Young Avengers with Kieran Gillen and uh, Jamie McKelvey, which is a book that is like, very sort of like poppy is how I would describe it. Um, the Wicked and the Divine with that same creative team and which again, like, yeah, very, very poppy. I think there's a problem here where there's another extremely good colorist with similar sensibilities named Matt Hollingsworth, and I sometimes get confused which one is which. I think Matt Hollingsworth did Hawkeye um, with Matt Fraction and David Aha, but also a great color job. Uh, Daredevil he did with Mark Wade and Chris Samney. Like he's he's good at working with artists like Cliff Chang and like Chris Samney who have a sort of like timeless style or not maybe not timeless but like it's like quintessential classic comics art if that makes sense it's like the alex toth school of comics art it's like the evolutionary descendant of like john ramita and uh and alex toth and david mazakelli all these guys who sort of like defined what comics look like in in a lot of ways and he just like pairs well with them and i think that part of that is because his colors are also sort of timeless in a similar way. Like they don't look out of place with sort of like a classic style any more than they do with a more modern uh, sensibility. Like Jamie McKelvey has a very modern sensibility, I would say. But but Wilson is one of those colorists who's able to sort of work everywhere. He's great. Yeah, um, definitely like, like I said, like the color palette is really interesting. Like there's a lot of like blues and pinks. And sort of using, like, coloring, so, like, for I'm looking at a scene right now where it's, like, it's the grandfather in his house, and it's, like, oh, like, the walls of his house are all blue, and his skin is blue. And obviously, like, it's not lit- meaning to, like, literally portray that, but, like, it's, like, coloring in, the, in, in that way, it sort of gives a suggestion of the colors while also, like, putting it in sort of, like, and giving, like an emotional tint to the scene in a lot of ways. Like, I think what this book is very good at portraying artistically and, like, it's sort of the way the book opens is that, that like, very early morning where it's, like, especially, like, where it's, like, the sun isn't up, but it's weirdly not dark. (laughs) And, like, you it's, like, you can see everything, but also everything has, like, a weird tint to it. And, like, you can just tell that it's, like, 530 or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that I think like that is the vibe it's going for a lot of the time and I think I'm not sure if it's like ever directly stated in story that you're kind of like frozen in that time or I guess it's just the way that the sky looks because yeah there's like a crazy pink lightning cloud above their heads but like sort of portraying that feeling and like that that is like giving an emotional tint to the story that like is not being created by or, you know, it, it is being created somewhat, but, like, it's being conveyed only through color. Like, if it was a different colorist who chose to color it differently, then you would get, a, I think, like, a very different emotional feel, especially to, like, the early parts of the story yep. than, than you do from that coloring. Yeah, I, I have read an interview with him where he talks a lot about, like, choosing the palette, and he describes his process as far as, like, 
he'll open like the entire he'll he'll get like the entire issue sort of like laid out in front of him and then set the palette for all of the pages one at a time so he can he's got like the whole book open in front of him and the color like palettes for them are kind of like across you know all all the way across so i think that part of that like cohesion and and the way that he's able to use those colors in effective ways is related to that that sort of like he's he's really using them to set the tone and like establish tone in ways that color often does but i think it's it's easy for that to sometimes sort of go unnoticed and like even like i was thinking recently about like color in like film is something that i just like don't notice at all that people will talk about a lot and be like oh the colors this color there's so much of this color in this movie and i'll be like i didn't notice that at all and it, it can be the same way in comics sometimes but i think he's someone who is good at like making the colors really part of the experience of the art but not in a way that is like distracting if that makes sense yeah i mean like it never it it feels, I think, very unified in its, in its aesthetic, which I think is, like, a huge point in favor of the coloring because, mm-hmm. like, it is a very, I think, showy, you would say, coloring job. Yeah, but but I think he does it in a way that, like, enhances the his artistic collaborators because I think, like, mm. and not, not to take away anything from Cliff Chang, who I think is, like, a great artist and, and, you know, there's so much more to art than just sort of, like, the aesthetic – but I do think that there's like an element of when people say like see Cliff Chang's art and they're like, wow, that looks incredible. Part of it is that like Matt Wilson has done an awesome job of coloring and like part of the way that it pops is because of like how he's colored it. And I would say the same thing about like his collaborations with Chris Samney and his collaborations with Jamie McKelvey. Like not that the art is by any stretch of the imagination bad or, or not aesthetically pleasing, but I think when you see it in black and white, it looks good. It looks like clean. It looks, you know, kinetic and exciting. But it's when you have Wilson's colors that it like, yeah, like sort of booms off the page and gives it this very like energetic feeling or like I'm I'm struggling to find the words almost. Yeah, I sort of think of it as like evocative in a way. Yeah. Like I like the way that the palette changes, like when they're indoors, like, when they're they're at Mac's stepmother's, like, inside the house, I think. Yeah. Like, that's a good example of how, like, the mood can change drastically just by the coloring. And obviously, like, because it's such, like, a surreal book, especially at the beginning where they are still in 1988, but you have, like, all this, like, surreality around it, like, having that color palette and being able to, like, establish the we- sort of like the surreality of the world through the palette where you have like these pink skies and like that's such a shift from the first issue which is like does that sort of like i said that sort of like early twilighty feel yeah but but even then like i think he does a good job of like using the colors even in that early issue to indicate when like something sort of weird like the big pink streak across the sky on that first splash page of Aaron like riding out on her bike is like injects that sort of like otherworldliness into it where even if you're picking up the book having no idea what it's about you're just like oh it's a brian k vaughn comic it's called paper girls it's about this paper girl this like weird pink like slash across the sky sort of like primes you to be like this like looks good for sure but also it looks like weird yeah the fact that it's like it is very like stylized like we like talk about like it did remind me in a lot of ways of like 
the work that Marcos Martin does on the private eye, especially the way in which like you'll have like often a monochromatic background. Like I think that they both make use of those kinds of panels in mm-hmm. the same way. And and I think that something that they have shared ground there is that they're both working with extremely talented colorists because Munza Vicente is also a great colorist and they're working in a, an artistic collaboration where the colorist and the artist have worked very closely together many times. So they know like they know how to get the most of each other out of each other. Like there's, there's right. some shared philosophies and sort of how they use the color, but it also is, is just that like they, the, they're working with colorists who know how to work with the artist who's doing the penciling and the inking uh, and, and know how to like really get the effect that they're working for because they have such like a strong collaborative relationship. So do we want to talk about the story of this book? <laughs> do we want to try and parse it? Cause like there are, there's, there's sort of like three distinct are, or maybe four, <laughs> like there are a few like sort of distinct like story threads or like plot beats that come up in these 10 issues where you start with they're delivering papers they don't know what's going on uh there's this like weird apocalypse that's happened and then they like discover that and are sort of trying to figure out what's going on and then you get into the more like they have some sense of what's going on like i mean i guess that happens like pretty early on that they sort of realize like things are crazy and they're uh like the the weird teenagers splash page that's like issue three i guess right but that's the one where like they've got the masks off and you can see their weird eyes and they're like we're teenagers yeah they have crazy faces yeah um and you know you start to introduce like more of the like lore elements of the book and then and so and and you know you have the stuff like where they're in the sewers and they encounter the time beast <laughs> as i'm geez, i think it Is does the, have a the name editrix? yes the editrix um and then you have the part where they proceed into the future and end up in well there's the part where like they're in this like weird time warehouse <laughs> well, and, then they and, end and up... they get split up so many times as well which yes. i think is part of why it's so difficult to keep track of what's going on because the four of them keep getting like kind of thrown out into different configurations uh, which is not that like that's not a bad thing and like exploring the different dynamics within the group is fine but they're not just like split up they're like flung across time and like the adventure that one group goes on is like let's go see if my parents still live at their house that they lived at in 1988 in 2016 and the adventure that one of the other ones is on is like medical bugs are eating the bullet out of my gut <laughs> it's yeah like such a and big swing that it yeah yeah and it's the exact same thing we talked about with saga right where it's like you're splitting you're splitting the group and like that like you said that can have positives like i think that the the relationship between mac and kj is like way more established than it might be or is it mac and it's mac and tiffany who yeah yeah i think that that relationship is like becomes a lot more established than it might be uh if they were just all constantly together because like because like you know at the start of the book it's sort of that Aaron and Mac are the two sort of main characters. Yeah. At least like they, Aaron's you know, Aaron's like the new kid point of view character and Mac is kind of like the leader, you know, sort of like rough around the edges, the, the Wolverine of the group. <laughs> sure. Ex- <laughs> yes, exactly. They are. Well, maybe but yes. And so I think having being able to maybe split them off a little bit 
and concentrate on the relationship on like a two character level is helpful. But like you said, like it just you you splinter the threads so quickly, mm-hmm. and that's I think it, I think it becomes a problem more over time with Saga, but it becomes a problem like pretty instantly in this book. I feel like because also like you were not just following these four like and like if if it was three stories where it's like Aaron's story, KJ's story, and then like Mac and Tiffany, then that might be like a little easier to handle. But then it's also like you're bringing in these like future people and we don't have any context for them because it is still being obscured. Yeah. And like no investment in them whatsoever. And like, it's, I, I feel like part of the problem with like obscuring the, the source of the war and like what that's all about, you know, we're 10 issues into a 30 issue book. We're like a third of the way through. We don't really even understand what the central conflict is. And so it's like, who care like i i don't care because i don't even know what they're fighting about and it's not it's not being used in the same way that war and saga is used as kind of like a like look at the senselessness of this conflict it's like no it seems like we're supposed to like maybe be like taking a side but we just have no idea like what is even happening and then they make the decision like it's it's not just splitting them off. Like I think it's a mistake to take Aaron out of the group and just put her in with like the future teens. Where it's like, I don't I don't care about like these future teens. I'm not really interested in their story. They don't really even have like a story per se as far as their connection with her so far. So we just have Aaron kind of like floating in isolation with these two characters who are like not really characters so much as they are like exposition devices but they're not giving us exposition about something that would actually like clarify what's going on they're just giving us sort of like like window dressing in a way if if that makes sense where i'm like do we do we need half an issue of this versus giving her like another half issue with future aaron which is like yeah we've got aaron by herself again sort of like in a way but she's like that the putting the two aarons together is like such a rich vein for like emotionality and like coming of age story stuff and like the stuff that Vaughn is good at versus like stranding her on an island with the stuff that I feel he is less good at. Yeah. Rich Mindvein, a famous uh Hayes Davenport character. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think like also like to use a Stranger Things comparison, not that I've seen more than like eight episodes of Stranger Things. Oh but like you've got to see stranger things (laughs) these kids they're playing dungeons and dragons i've heard about this there's a freaking demogorgon yeah so i truly like i truly like watched like i stopped like two episodes before the end of the first season like i feel like i tend to give up on stuff like right before it's getting like you haven't even seen eleven's dark phoenix saga arc Sounds cool. It's um, universally thought of as not that cool. <laughs> huh? But everyone loves the Dark Phoenix saga. But yeah, like, it, it does feel like, like, I mean, like, KJ is an example where, like, she kind of gets, I would say, Will Byers. <laughs> yeah. She is, like, thrown away and we don't know where she is. Yeah, we, we will like, get a lot more of KJ, I will say. Like, they, yeah. yeah. And, like, I'm sure that's the case, but it's just, like, it's like now you're playing catch up with that character 
And I assume, and that's like, at the end of this 10 issues, you're putting us in such a drastically new setting. And then it's, so it's like, you will have that element to deal with. And then I assume we also like, we'll need to pick up the thread of now two other errands in addition to Aaron Prime. It's like, that we we haven't learned like we haven't concluded anything with any of the like plot lines yeah and so i know we're going to need to come back to them and now we're introducing another new thing and so like it's it just feels like it's piling and like this sort of gets back to the idea that it's like i want i i want it to just be about paper girls and, like <laughs> maybe that's just like me imagining a book that is like was this was never going to be but then it's like when I I came in wanting that, like, a story that was literally just about, like, four girls who, like, go to school and, like, their interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And then it, you go from that to what this is, which is, like, so crazy. Then it, like, I think feels all the more jarring that, like, there's so much going on and, like, seemingly not much interest. Like, I guess we do get some context from, like, the grandfather character that, like he, like, gives a little bit of, like, the mechanics of the universe to some extent. Well, yeah, but, like, like his mechanics of the universe are, like, if you think about it, when you time travel, you also have to space travel. Is that him who gives that exposition? He does, I believe. And I'm just, like, who gives a, like, (laughs) time travel doesn't actually exist, and, like, I I don't know. I'm, like, can sympathize, I guess, to an extent in that, like, I am the kind of person who certainly at one point of my life was like, let's think about, like, the logistics of time travel. And, like, if you think about it, you actually would also have to be moving through space because the Earth is moving through, like, the universe. But now I'm just like, who cares? Like, time travel doesn't actually exist. So, like, you're just making up the rules anyways. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. feel like you need to explain that. I don't know. But that's that's picking nits for sure. But you know, what, no, I know what you mean, because like, it feels like a very it's like there was a time in like, I feel like the early 2010s when it's like, you know what the coolest time travel movie is? Primer. Because <laughs> the rules actually like make sense. And it's just like, yes but <laughs> it's so I mean, like, boring I, I i i do like primer like i think it's interesting like because of that but it's like because the rules make sense like literally the whole movie becomes about like explaining the yeah. rules like but but which like, like that's also 40 percent tr- of that movie is like just them like talking about the rules and like explain and it's like you don't even see like what they're doing because what they're doing isn't that interesting and so yeah. they're just like talking about it but that's also true of like inception like a ton of inception is explaining like here's the rules of like how the dream stuff works and it's like i think you can make a good story that is basically about like i had this cool idea <laughs> for like this like you know it's it's the same sort of thing for people who are like you know why brandon sanderson is awesome because he explains like all the rules of his magic systems and i'm like like yeah you can you can kind of to a certain extent build a story that is interesting and exciting because the idea is just like so original that just like having people explain it is like exciting in and of itself and you can use the idea to like you know manipulate people into like visually cool things or like you know exciting exciting concepts exciting scenarios but as we've like kind of talked about with vaughn before in saga and a little bit in the private eye like 
he's not really good at those sorts of like rules. So I'm like, why are you even no. introducing these rules when I know you don't like even care really that much about them? And like, that's not what you're interested in. So why don't you stick to, at, to the things that you are interested in and that you do so well? Because when this book is good, it's like so good. Like the page when Mac finds out that she dies is so good. I'm <laughs> just like more of that. Yeah. Less of grandfather being like, ah, 2016, the year my mother was born. Yeah, and that's, like, I think what I've sort of been getting at is that, like, the interpersonal, like, he's so good at writing dialogue and, like, so good at sort of, like, forging interesting dynamics where it's, like, you can have a group of four main characters who have different relationships with each other and the wit and, like, create an interplay there that is, like, you know, like, I mean, that's a lot of, like, what I think TV writing is and maybe why he has, like, sort of come into that world because it's about, like, creating, like, you have this group of characters and it's all about like the ways that you sort of like, it's like a web where like if you pull at one strand of a character, then like it's going to affect other characters in some way. And I think he is really good at that from like a relationship aspect. But then like you say, like so much of this book is about like other stuff. And it's like, <laughs> it's about other stuff featuring the, like featuring not those characters. And yes. it's like, and it's so separate where it's like the like main characters have spent like like they've talked to one of those like weird paladins for like five minutes and they've met like they don't know they don't know <laughs> who the grandfather is they don't know that he exists yeah they don't I even know that they... the grandfather exists is like the i think i think they might have had like he yelled down to them while they were like in the basement before they like escaped to the far far flung world of 2016 i think but they've literally like they've never stood face to face with the grandfather and that's again it's like we're, we're a third of the way through i don't know what the grandfather wants i don't know what this like whole war is about i don't i barely understand why they're important they're like somehow <sighs> yeah they're special because they didn't get sucked up but like is it but like why is it that they didn't like yeah. yeah are they special because they didn't get sucked up or they weren't sucked up because they were special it's like it's it's right. all just, i'm sure i'm sure some of these questions will be answered but yeah at like 10 issues in i, I don't know i i just like kind of remember why i sort of lost steam with this book because it's like i mean this guy you know he wrote for lost so <laughs> the sort of like stretching out of this true. mystery as like it's interest like, like polar bears in here <laughs> speaking of time travel you know uh, and like the numbers, what do they mean? We neither of us have seen the program. I <laughs> no, we haven't. Um, <laughs> but I know there's something to do with numbers and like a, a hatch or something. Anyways, oh, like Hurley, great Weezer album. Oh, okay, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. Uh, but speaking <laughs> of TV, it is funny to me that like now they're about to make a Paper Girls TV show yeah. because it's like as we we're recording. It was announced within like the past couple of weeks that Why the Last Man is not continuing at FX. And I'm like, I think part of that is because people were clamoring it for it for so long because it was such like a, you know, it felt so original. It felt so fresh. It felt so now, but it took them so long to make it that when it actually came out, it was like, hmm, this is not original or fresh or now. And it's the same thing where like, and Emilio kind of talked about this last time on, uh, on the uh, Private Eye episode where it's like, when this book came out, it was like so now. It's all it always feels so current, like so modern. He's so in touch with the culture, but it really is that like they're books for that cultural moment. And it's like we're now five years removed, and like Stranger Things is already a thing. 
I'm just like, is there any chance that this makes it past season one because people watch it and are not just like, okay, we get it. Like Stranger Things rip off. Who cares? Like we've seen Stranger Things before. Thank you. Yeah. And I think like to sort of get back to what you were talking about when you brought up Inception, because like, I think one of the great like tricks of Inception and like what's crazy about Inception is that like it spends so much time setting the table, but is like able to do that in a way that is very interesting. Like obviously the prime example is like that first sort of dream world sequence where like it's introducing the rules of the dream world and like what you can do and what you can't do, but in a way that's like so incredibly engaging and like fascinating and you just like want to like well it just looks like... so good that you like you know it almost doesn't matter what they're saying it's like okay keep keep yeah yeah, yeah whatever keep going keep going <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like there's so like it's so rich in that that like it's like you are perfectly like content to watch like a ton of table setting because like that movie is like structured very crazily where it's like you have like it's kind of like a it's like six acts maybe where like the, the dream itself is like this three or five maybe act structure. And then like on top of that, you have like a, you have like two acts on either side maybe. And so like, it is like a very crazy book, but because it are a, a movie rather, but because it's like showing you such interesting things and it's such an interesting concept, you're on board for it. And I think just like the big difference is that this book, like the version like the version of like the like infinite mirror thing or like the world folding over on itself is like there are pterodactyls in this world actually <laughs> yeah uh, these or, guys or, actually they like to ride around on pterodactyls it's kind of crazy or even like that like the editrixes are like weird looking things but it's i, I don't know it's like it's something that's often talked about where it's like the great thing about comics is there's like an unlimited special effects budget. You can do like whatever you want. You can show whatever you want. And it's like, it's true, but like there's a certain magic of those like images in motion. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ever feel like, like movies can be transportative in a way where it's like, whoa, it's like, you know, I could, I could almost like reach out and touch it. It feels so like, there whereas comics like stylization and like you know all the stuff that we talked about in understanding comics of like the reduction to the icon so that it can be like generalizable and like easily digestible that also takes away from that sort of like the magic of it to a certain extent so that when i see people like riding on pterodactyls i'm not like whoa those guys are riding pterodactyls i'm just kind of like like peering at the book and sort of like oh oh yeah cool cool yeah, and certainly, like, part of, I think, the magic of, like, an Inception or of, like, the Marvel movies, I think, like, what they do really well is that they feel, like, it does really feel like you are experiencing, like, these fantastical things while also, like, occupying our world to some extent. And, and, and like, I, like, I'm, sorry, please proceed. <laughs> well, just, I was just, because, like, and, like, like, see, like, seeing, I think that part of like why they create wonderment and why they have like people have latched on them so much compared to like other more not generic but like more out there like sci-fi fantasy kind of blockbusters is that like it's it's placed so firmly in what we know that like it makes the spectacularness of it like sort of more spectacular like if you just saw the hulk like on like some planet it's like oh like this is just like a monster guy but then when you see the Hulk like on the streets of New York City, you're like, whoa, like 
He's doing this crazy stuff yeah. in New York City. And the, the like, Empire State Building lives. is right there. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, like, I think that that is maybe one of, like, the things that it does effectively. And I'm not sure I had a point there, but I just <laughs> wanted to bring that up based on what you said. Well, I think as well that part of it is, like, movies, one of the ways that they also achieve that wonderment is sort of, like, bearing in mind the sense of scale, especially in a theater. But even, like, when you're watching it at home, like... Like the monitor that I'm looking at right now is like probably like four or five times the size of like the the comic I have, and like you know the there's a, the sound element as well. These are these are things that kind of like can shock the system in a way that like a comic book is not really capable of. But I think that there can be times where like for example, like to, to stay in like the Nolan wheelhouse, like the shot in Interstellar when they're on like the water planet and the huge wave is coming. Like, you can never really achieve something in a comic book that feels like what that feels like when you're, like, sitting in a theater and you see, like, <laughs> you know, a wave that is, like, that that big and coming towards you. That sort of, like, sense of scale is difficult to achieve. But I feel like to go back to that video game sequence that you were talking about that Tiffany is in, when it she's, like, touched and the, like perspective shifts from portrait to landscape, that's something that is unique to to comics and that's something where it's like you are literally being like turned upside down and sort of like reoriented and and that's stranger things yeah the freaking upside down demogorgons um (laughs) that that sort of like it's like she is disoriented and so is the Mm. book like the book is now disoriented and you get this sort of like this is a surreal experience of like turning this like playing playing with the format in this way that like is different even when like you know i know movie buffs are sometimes like the change the aspect ratio for this scene and it's freaking crazy but it's like it's so much more disruptive than like something like changing an aspect ratio is like comics changes the aspect ratio every page right like every panel is a new aspect ratio in a lot of ways so to like break the format like that i think is a good use of the medium to to achieve those kinds of effects but it's like an experiential thing it's not like you can't just like be like there's a pterodactyl turn the book on its side so that you can like get how cool it is that there's like a pterodactyl here (laughs) it's it's useful for things like um like scott snyder in his new 52 batman run there's an issue where he gets like drugged and is making his way through this labyrinth and he turns every page into like a spiral so that you're like you're turning the book constantly to like keep keep following the panels because every single panel is reoriented and every page is reoriented and you just keep like spinning the book around to to follow what's going on and it's like this is extremely disorienting and like kind of psychedelic and like mind bending and and is like a good a good use of like the page and the the expectations of like how you can maneuver around a page and like move from image to image like the sequence stuff all of that but I, yeah, I, all that to say, like, I don't know how you do that to also like convey that sort of like sense of wonderment that seems to be like so easy to accomplish in some ways in a medium like, like film. Yeah. And yeah, all of this is like very Scott stuff. Like the idea that like, like the time compression stuff that he talks about a lot, like, like being able to change like how quickly you perceive a seat like i mean like i guess like you can put something in slow motion but like that's a very drastically like and jarring like artistic choice Mm -hmm. compared to like 
just being able to present things at different rates within a panel. Yeah, or or even like the sequence that we talked about in the private eye where like you have that like frozen moment when when like the, the Frenchmen fire the bullets at him that we, you know, we talked about that at some length, but like that's something that if you were doing it in film, like it would just be slow motion and it wouldn't look good to just do like recreate the page in a sense of like cutting between all the elements and being like, look, still, 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 still. It would be like a slow motion thing where like everyone's like. Yeah, and it's certainly like <laughs> other than Kazi <laughs> Great. But yeah, like I, and I think that like that is it's certainly not a sequence that I think would be particularly memorable. No, like, other than like like not since like the Matrix. Yeah, I was gonna, like I was going to say like we like it's just it's bullet time, but like it's so much easier to do in a way that feels original and fresh in a comic than it would be on screen. Yeah, and like other than that, like the closest thing to like a truly sort of like defining use of that is like 300 and like speed ramping kind of stuff Mm -hmm. which um you know is like i don't think that there's really a specific memorable sequence that's more of like a memorable technique and maybe there are some sequences in 300 that are like visually like memorable but then also maybe that's just like Zack snyder as like an effective visual director yeah and i do think that there's like kind of a comic book aspect to that as well because i think that part of the like reason i mean obviously in some of the more like involved action scenes it's about like it looks cool and it makes the action look that much cooler but i do think that sometimes it's used to like the moment when he slows down it's like composing a panel and it's it's like the image that he's using is like lifted directly out of the source material and like watchman again would be another one like that he did that all the time but he likes to sort of like it's not quite a freeze frame, but he'll slow it down so that it's like, look, here it is. It's like, it's that moment that like, you know, the readers who who love it, we all know this. It's like burned into our consciousness and like, look, here it is. And then he'll kind of like resume back into the action. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a big part of Snyder's style, especially like obviously in his comic book movies that like he's composing panels and then like resume the action. Right. And, and it's like, the, it's the interest in that like iconography and he knows that there are certain images that yes. are like because he is also a comic book nerd <laughs> to like to say yeah, some and level. someone who's very like into iconography yeah and, sure. and and like appreciates visuals and things like that that he knows that like when you see that image like kind of brought to life before you it's worth sort of like stopping on because it like it's a moment to be like <gasps> and then like you know carry on right do we want to talk about the ipod <laughs> <laughs> like the the device that they find yes it bears a I, I at first thought it was just, like, a, like, mid-2010s era iPod that's, Nano. That's what I also thought the first time I read it. I knew it wasn't this time because I had read it. But I, in some ways, I'm like, that's a better idea almost. And it feels very Vaughn. Like, something that's extremely... I guess it's still what he's kind of doing with, like, the Apple logo. But something that's, like, extremely familiar and mundane to us to recontextualize it like that and have the characters, like, not really understand what they're holding but know that the audience understands what they're holding like again that's basically what he's doing but it just for some reason to me feels like a better idea if it's actually just like like an ipod video and not not like a cool future apple product yeah and like yeah and it's kind of trying to do two things at once like i think that that sort of idea of it's a future apple product is done more effectively later on i think it's like issue five 
where you open with like that like crazy giant like tower thing with the Apple logo. Yeah, you know I'm talking yeah. about. I think it's is it part of like the medical system? But at any rate, it's like in their warehouse, and it's like a crazy futuristic tower. Like it's like the those like trash can Mac Pros, but a giant obelisk. But yeah, like like you said, like I think that I don't know, and maybe that is part of it that like it it is both inventing things from whole cloth like the like paladins and like their whole aesthetic and their like laser lances and stuff like that but then also it has a bit of you know because it's a time travel book like the elements of iconography from different eras are like a big part of it and like we talked about at the end of issue 10 where like it's again you're taking a piece of multiple different pieces of visual iconography and remixing them together into something new that like but uh, that's that like instantly understandable and evocative and it's like exactly and it, it like it speaks on so many levels so instantly just by combining these two familiar ideas yeah like you know like even like you you know what you're looking at but you don't know why that's what you're seeing yeah and maybe that is like a more successful version of like showing a bunch of like like showing the paladins like riding on the pterodactyl with laser weapons like you under like that's the sort of same idea where like you're remixing the iconography of because it's like you're re- you're putting like medieval iconography mm-hmm. with dinosaur iconography yeah. with like sci-fi future iconography you've got the champions that, of the freaking realm but they're in our world yeah the champs of nora uh, <laughs> it's a reference of to course the playstation to, 2 yeah shout out to playstation 2 uh rpg classic champions of norath shout out to free to play game paladins colon champions of the realm oh. <laughs> chris who, who do you main in paladins i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> I, this is a game i've only ever played with you because it is crazy and bad <laughs> <laughs> disagree disagree bad. Uh, it's only gotten better just to completely change directions here's the one issue i had so they see the apple logo and they don't recognize it at all. One of them does say, this looks kind of like what is on the new computer my like my school just got. But isn't there like a very famous Apple commercial from 1984? Yes. And like the their, famous... their logo has never changed. Like it's the same logo, right? Yes. I mean, like it's possible that like they were like eight years old. It's like that's it's also a situation where that was a commercial that aired and like aired during the Super Bowl. Right. But also like you can't go on YouTube and like rewatch a a clip of it. Like it's like you maybe did it, either but saw like it did it didn't. only ever air during the Super Bowl? Like it, I don't know, maybe maybe it did. I'm just like, man, an extremely famous ad. Like did it didn't it run like all the time? And like I, I in like a culture or a, a period of culture where like everyone watched TV, you know? Yeah, it, it feels like it would be more so. familiar to me th- at that point. But again, this is like written by and with art by two guys who like grew up in the 80s and like are are contemporaries of these characters. So it, it's possible that they're thinking like, I didn't know what Apple was in 1988. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I'm seeing here on the Wikipedia page for that ad that <laughs> the only national US airing was during the Super Bowl. Okay. And which makes sense That's because fair. like, it is basically like a 60 second short film. Yeah. <laughs> like it is not really like a commercial in the traditional sense. Like it is a very like Super Bowl ad kind of ad where it's like right. 
it is like a spectacle unto itself and it doesn't really directed by ridley scott (laughs) (laughs) you don't know about this have you not seen the the 2015 film steve jobs i have not seen the 2015 film steve jobs do they include when he introduces the iraq in that one (laughs) (laughs) do you just they include when he introduces a widescreen iphone with touch controls (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> breakthrough mobile phone and a brand new internet communicator i made an extremely good joke based on that at some point that i think you were the only person who laughed at and i was like do you guys not remember like that was a big deal <laughs> I, no i'm the only person who <laughs> ever, ever thought that that's that. funny <laughs> it's so it's funny not, you're not the only well, i mean you're the only person who talks about it now but that was like what like 2007 right like i was in yeah. grade 10 when that happened i remember people talking about it and being like they're making the ipod into a freaking phone <laughs> Like it was a big yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah, certainly the iPhone was, was a quote unquote big deal. <laughs> but yeah, like that's just, like I'm really obsessed with those. Like the there's the, a classic like, keynote one like presentations where he like yes. unveils new products really dramatically. Yeah, yeah. And, and not just Steve Jobs, but it's like um, I was just watching a video the other day. In fact, where it's like where the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were announced <laughs> for Injustice as DLC. <laughs> Um, and like another classic like one, any time is... that someone is like on stage in front of like at like a conference of some kind and is like, "We're doing this," and the crowd's like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." There are a couple of classic Nintendo ones, like the announcement of Super Smash Brothers Melee and uh, the announcement of Twilight Princess. What's the, the Zelda game? What's the announcement when Steve Ballmer like comes on stage and just like screams for like ten minutes? I don't There's even. Where I he think comes that is on, just he's like, like so red, so sweaty. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, crazy. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know if it's a specific. Like, it might just be like their like thing, like, and it's not related Steve to like Ballmer a crazy is. product. He's on crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it literally is just like the like Microsoft like whatever keynote thing. I'm and reading he just, here like, that is he's crazy. Uh, unveiling Clippy. <laughs> And there's another one, there's another similar Steve Ballmer, I, I might, it might be from the same one, but where he just screams developers over and over oh, again. Oh, yeah, about that? yeah, that's like an Xbox thing, I think. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, we love hey. it. <laughs> but yes, also, uh, and uh, you know, like the, the Cyberpunk 2077 Keanu Reeves reveal oh, yeah, is another yeah, yeah. Uh, great moment. Like, I, I just love those moments. And so, uh, Steve Jobs, the movie. Mm-hmm. Is like built around like the iPhone so reveal. <laughs> no, I wish it was. It's it's uh, but it's built around like this like three act structure where each of the acts takes place at a different Apple keynote. Oh, love that! And <laughs> it's truly like you like you should watch it today. And we are so far afield of what we're talking about, but I'm into this conversation now. Where uh, yeah, so it's Michael Vassbender. Uh, incredible performance uh kate winslet fantastic in it michael stuhlbarg fantastic in it jeff daniels uh but yes this it's so that it's like it's backstage at these three different events that are like it it spans from like i think like the first mac unveiling and so you like there are like a lot of references to the 1984 commercial right going on through like the last one i think is where he's introduced it's it's maybe like the one before the ipod like where it's like he's back on top, kind of. Right. Uh, anyways, 
a fantastic film. Everyone should watch it. Criminally underrated. One of my favorite movies. I'm pretty sure I am uh, familiar with this commercial because of the AMC television series Halt and Catch Fire. I believe the season one finale is like they they have like just gotten their like sort of computer company off the ground and then it ends with him seeing like the 1984 ad and being like uh oh freaking trouble <laughs> something tells me halt and catch fire systems isn't gonna be a big computer company <laughs> but yes it does and it is that that the crazy thing is that that iPod looks so. I guess by this point, it just it looks was so much update. like an iPod Nano or like a like a an Apple Watch, like the back of an Apple Watch, or like yeah, it looks it looks really specifically like a specific iPod Nano that nobody had except me, <laughs> <laughs> because everyone had progressed onto like having iPod Touches at that right. point, and because but people this... were like, actually, it's good if you are able to choose what song you're listening to. <laughs> Yeah, it's good if... Well, that's the iPod Shuffle one that famously had no controls on it. And the Except controls for, like, were on the earbud. Except and... Uh, no, oh, it had oh, no oh, controls that's what at saying. all. Okay. But that's a different thing entirely. But yes, this, like, tiny iPod Nano, which only lasted, like, I think, a, like, one or two years before it was replaced by, like, a more classic iPod Nano. But anyways, uh, this is all to say nothing at all, I suppose. <laughs> but certainly a lot of interesting like we said interesting use of iconography hopefully that will be uh paid off but yeah so i I would say like the seeding of the image of the apple is like a strong theme throughout and of course like they're all or or most of them go to like catholic school of of some variety and so the image of the apple as like a religious symbol for them like it, it carries a lot of meaning throughout the book and and like obviously there's the like the sort of religious undertones behind uh like grandfather and and all the olds uh as well and like you know ending with like we've been calling it like bahama worshiping the apple like i think he's done a good job like a really good job of seeding the apple kind of throughout and imbuing it with like this uh, these layers of meaning all of which are like you know the it's representative of like so many forces that kind of like act upon society <laughs> as it were and and we'll see if it like pays off but <laughs> yeah and I, like i just think that that may i guess mainly because it is like such a big like such a big thing in our culture that logo that like that use of iconography i just find a lot more successful then like like maybe it's just i don't think the pterodactyls are cool that's really what it boils down to <laughs> well like i don't like i don't find any of like the original sci-fi yeah. elements of this book like particularly compelling and like obviously there are a ton of like alternate history or like alternate future kind of books that will remix like iconic imagery in that way but maybe do it more effectively. It's it's like just that the the Apple like logo is so grounded in what we know and it seems so unrelated to like everything else about like the future. It's like what does that have to do with like again the the sort of like religious aesthetic of the olds and like how that is connected to the Apple like I think that comes together fairly well, but it's like how does the centrality of Apple relate to like the whole time travel <laughs> sort of like component of things why does it make teenagers become ninjas with like crazy eyes like what is it why aren't the translators like apple translator things you know like it's it's yeah yeah and it's 
I think it's very representative of because it's like it's a piece of branding ultimately. Yeah. And I think that like having that as like one of your symbols of like the future that's like the idea is that like this sort of like corporate yeah. nature of it. But it like, will, like doesn't carry feel over. corporate at all. Like there's yeah. there's no element of that sort of like we're living in a in a future where like corporations control everything and like the world no. is a giant business or anything like that. Yeah, but, like, you have that, and then you compare it to, like, the other elements of the future, like, that the olds have, where it's, like, he has, like, a rocket blimp, like, or, like, a, <laughs> a, a jet blimp, and it's just, like, this is so, this is a very different flavor of, like, I think what you're going for here, where it's sort of, like, recontextualizing a, like, piece of iconography, and it's just, like, I, it just works very differently for me i think yeah. like i don't see it as anything more than like a sci-fi spaceship basically yeah uh, with like you know some it, like, like it's got sort some of, of that, steampunky elements yeah and it's it's like the interior is very like cathedral like it's got those like vaulting ceilings and like mm. arch windows and things like that um did you notice that grandfather is wearing an apple records shirt yes he wears a number of different uh he wears a public enemy shirt at one point yes uh, he wears a Woodstock shirt. Which he... is also funny because, like, he, I mean, maybe we'll get more into this about the, like, nostalgia component, but he, his mother was born in 2016. Like, why <laughs> does he know? <laughs> why does he know? I had a funny conversation with someone yesterday because, like, a local boutique store here had, like, a lineup of, like, teenagers around the block. And I was saying to him, like, there there was probably, like, a shoe release happening because I'm familiar with the stores. Like, there's probably a shoe release. He's like, no, no, I looked it up. It was, like, a Grateful Dead t-shirt. And I was like, huh, I wouldn't have thought that like the overlap between people who have like the time and energy to camp out for like clothing drops and Grateful Dead fans is like <laughs> a high, a high degree of overlap. And grandfather has that same sort of energy for me where I'm like, why do you care what Apple Records is? I think I think the mistake you're making in both cases is that you assume that the people who are <laughs> camped out for this t-shirt are Grateful Dead fans. And that's not to be like the person who's like, you're wearing a Metallica t-shirt, but you don't even freaking know five of their albums. But like <laughs> name five streaming services that Lars Ulrich got taken down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I think like that that is and like maybe that's like part of the it and maybe like that, well yeah that's too much into that's this. what i think then, though is that like what's gonna maybe tie in more strongly thematically with this sort of like we've talked a little bit already about how nostalgia he he's looking at a sort of like a double-edged sword in some ways so maybe that will become a stronger theme as as we go on yeah and also this like i think the idea that like the further removed you get from like the thing that the iconography represents the more it just becomes like a piece of iconography unto itself almost like you know like like wood like he the, i assume this guy is like so <laughs> divorced from woodstock yeah that like yeah like that's not an important thing to him but like the the woodstock logo and sort of like the cultural space that woodstock occupies within like history mm -hmm. has sort of like outlived the actual like music or even like the event itself borrowed nostalgia from the unremembered 80s am i right Oh, good pull, good pull. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else we want to talk about here? Because I do feel like we like did not really talk about the book that much. It is like a weird. It's a weird book to talk about plot wise yeah. because it is like very 
dense and very confusing. And I do I do also feel like, you know, this is to say that, like, I don't really have much more to say about the book itself. I do think that part of it is because, like, we just have stopped at a point yet where there's like almost not really that much more to discuss at least plot wise like i don't know i'm sure i could i could flip through and find lots of points to uh you know look at and be like well who knows maybe i wouldn't have much more insightful commentary than this was good or this was bad but like yeah i I just think that right now we have too many unanswered questions and so like speculating about it like if someone's coming along and listening to this who like has read the whole thing is just like Wow, great. very cool to listen to these two guys, like, imagine something that they're just going to be talking about what actually happens soon anyways. Yeah. Uh, but, um, of course, I'm always up for some awards talk. Yes, you take take it away and I'll have a quick rest. Uh, Paper Girls, the... 2016 Eisner Award winner for Best New Series, Cliff Chang, (laughs) Best Penciler slash Inker. Is there, is there like a situation similar, like, because like the Oscars, when people talk about the Oscars, it's like, on the one hand, it's like the closest thing to the movie awards that we have, Mm -hmm. but then also like there is this implicit understanding that like, it is a very, (laughs) yeah, that they suck, that there is like a bias system that like, there's going to inherently be some bias towards like a certain type of movie and like and like movies coming from like established sort of creators like it's just crazy to me like i mean obviously like i haven't read like i can't point to anything specific but like i can't imagine that if i read every new series that came out in 2015 that this would be my favorite. And that's not to say I dislike it because I think we spent a lot of time criticizing this book (laughs) and there are elements of it that like I really like. And maybe it's just comes down to a taste thing, but like, I can't imagine that I would be like, well, like far and away, like even compared to like, you think about the Oscars, like parasite is an example of a book where it's like, uh, or (laughs) I can't, uh, a movie mm-hmm. where, like, even if it's not my absolute favorite movie that year, I am perfectly happy with that being the winner because, like, I like it enough that I understand that it would be, like, I understand that it would come out on top if you were, like, created an aggregate. I feel less strongly that way about Paper Girls. Yeah, I would say, like, Best New Series, in a way, like, the fact that they do Best New Series makes it almost more comparable to the Grammys, where they have, like, kind of, like, the Best New Artist thing, where, like, it's just the nature of things that there's going to be some years where you look back and you're like, wow, like, that one over that? Or, Or just, like, something wins Best New Series, and then you're kind of like wow, it's funny that people thought that this was good in the the first, like, however many issues, because it's so not good. Not that, like, again, uh, I I think Paper Girls is uneven, but uh, there's more in it that I like than that I don't like. Here are the nominees for Best New Series in the year that Paper Girls won. Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Valentine Delandro. Harrow County by Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook. Kaiju Max by Xander Cannon, Monstrous by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda, uh, Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang, and The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl by Ryan North and Erica Henderson. So it's like, 
Yeah, it's I, I mean, I guess I would say it's sort of like the Oscars in that like the blockbusters are not necessarily like getting nominated, but it's not exactly like art house ultra indie stuff either, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it's it's mainstream, but not like so mainstream that it's like, oh, it's it's the like people's choice awards or something like that. I have read some of these books that were nominated alongside it. And I wouldn't necessarily say that any of them, especially for best new series, like I don't know that I would pick any of them out and be like, this is an obvious pick. Just to your to your point about sort of the idea of like the sort of middle ground between the blockbuster and the art house that like until 2018, like you had a run from 2017, 2010 to 2017, where it was um, where it was only one Vertigo comic wins for best new series and the rest are all mostly image mm-hmm. and then one Dark Horse and one Boom. Right. So like it is like a case where they are recognizing like stuff that is like outside the ultra mainstream at the very least. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say that it's something that the Eisners has kind of gotten better at over time. I feel like when we talked about it at one point, I sort of said like the Eisners are kind of like the basic awards <laughs> into a certain extent where like for a long time, it was a lot of like Marvel and DC stuff that got nominated and the Harveys were kind of like the hoity toity awards where like, the kind of people who write for the comics journal would be like, ah, here at least like real talent can be recognized. I think they've kind of balanced out a bit. Like these days you'll see a lot of stuff nominated for Eisner's that is very much like outside uh, of, of sort of the mainstream. And even in like 2016 here, like if you move to a different category, say best writer artist, the nominees are from Fantagraphics, Abrams, Pantheon, Fantagraphics, Fantagraphics. And like, like Ed Pisker is on here who is like more recognizable maybe now because he did some Marvel work and, and has like a YouTube show that, that gets him some recognition, but the creators are not like, you know, recognized big two creators who like did a bunch of work on Marvel or DC books and then are now like getting recognized. Like Noah Van Siver on here is writing Fonte Bukowski, which is his like, his like take on, toxic masculinity in like the world of literature (laughs) it's like a very weird like satirical book that like you know back in the day it would have been harvey's fodder and now it gets like it gets eisner nominations Um, sort of the chair of its day (laughs) it is kind of the chair of its day yeah have you seen the chair i have not um if i may briefly interject as well i just found out from because in 2018, the best new series was Black Bolt. Yeah. And through that, I've just discovered that Black Bolt's name is, of course, Black, Black Gar- Gar- Bolt. Yep, classic. And uh, don't care for it too what? much. What? You don't I like Black Agar Boltagon? <laughs> <It's... laughs> was that always his name? Oh, obviously, was it was always his name. No, no, no. Black Agar Boltagon was always his name. Um, and we love it. It's great. Apparently we do. Some of us do. We listen, I feel confident to speak for all of us and say we love it. I mean, listen, this is from the same the same mind that brought you, you know, all your all your favorite eternals, Kingo, Icarus, Druig, Thena, Ajak. (laughs) Can we talk about that like so yeah. Jack Kirby is responsible for any character that has a bunch of circles on their costume uh, and a crazy name. And I just want to remind everybody that he wrote uh, a parody 
of Stan Lee and uh, and another prominent Marvel editor and creator, Roy Thomas. Stan Lee's parody, of course, Funky Flashman, uh, who is constantly trying to scam the new gods, and uh, his faithful <laughs> manservant, House Roy, <laughs> is the Roy Thomas take, who goes about uh, uh, yes-manning everything that Funky Flashman says. We also later will meet Cogburn, uh, who is a take on John Byrne that Jack Kirby included after John Byrne went to testify on behalf of DC in the like Schuster and Siegel estate versus DC like lawsuits over the intellectual property of Superman. John Byrne was like, they knew what they were signing with those contracts. <laughs> Jack Kirby Ooh, got guy. so mad. <laughs> yeah, oh, he put Cogburn, uh, look up Cogburn uh, sometime and read about what his whole character's deal is and you'll know what Jack Kirby thought about that. But anyways, he also came up with Blackagar Boltagon, who we love. Sure. I'm now I'm now digging into it's it's very unfortunate for you that you invoked the Grammy Award for Best New Artist, uh-huh. which is a <laughs> fascinating <laughs> category, which I have a lot of thoughts oh, on. Oh, here we go. Uh, primarily just because, like, the timing, like, because it's there are no, like, really set rules Wait, hold for on, what... hold on, hold on. Okay, 149.54, so cut from there. So, okay, proceed. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to look and be like, we're at 60 minutes into this podcast. <laughs> No, there's not. There's a, it's been all killer, no filler. I'm not cutting anything. It's true, if anything, not enough gets cut. But yes, it's a it's a fascinating category primarily because there is no criteria for it, like <laughs> of of what constitutes a quote yeah, best new artist. That is something that like you know we don't follow like the music scene like that in the same way that we do with like movies, and I I will with comics. But that is something that I frequently noticed is like they debuted in 2006. When they won the 2013 award for best new artist, it's like, okay, cool. I guess that's Yes, it is really like, it is really like best artist that that the the Grammys have decided to start recognizing this year. Yeah. (laughs) But something equally crazy, because I was just looking at the list here. Uh, The winner in 1961 for best new artist, Bob Newhart. Okay. For his two stand-up albums i'm here the button-down mind of bob newhart and the button-down mind strikes back both released in 1961 to be honest i love it i wish they would do that again (laughs) that's really really crazy oh my god it went best album of the year this is crazy we love it this is insane there is a very like obvious like sea change here where the winners of album of the year is 1966, S- September of My Years, Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. 1967, A Man and His Music, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> 1968, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> uh, uh, that's great. Doesn't uh, didn't the soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night lose the like best soundtrack to Mary Poppins? Uh, I don't know that information. But very interesting. Like, uh, the to me, the quintessential example of a... Well, there's probably a couple, actually. But two of the craziest examples of Best New Artist wins are uh, Bonnie Vare, 
who do you want to take a guess as to when Bonnie Fair won Best uh, New Artist? Is that going to be for twenty two a million? <laughs> that would be really crazy, but it is almost as it's crazy. It's not. It's not for for Emma Forever. Correct, out, right? That the it's for what? For Holocene? Is that the one after? It's that the Holocene is a song, but yes, the right. it's a self titled record that came out in twenty eleven. Right. So he wins in twenty twelve. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> and did when did for emma forever go come 2007. out 2007 like and it's like y'all y'all ain't heard of skinny love <laughs> <laughs> i do weirdly though recall that like like i don't remember really hearing bonnie fair songs before like 2010 no and like it was definitely a grower you know yeah certainly like that album was a breakout album in many ways but it's like I would imagine that if you went and looked on Spotify what his most streamed songs are, I would imagine yeah. that Skinny Love is, like, if not number up one, there. certainly yeah, up sure. there. Uh, yeah, and, like, even though, like, the Bonnie Vare self-titled one is a breakout, like, it, he was still, like, he was known at that point. It's not like Bonnie Vare was huge and then people were like, hey, he's actually got another album all, out already, and, like, it's awesome. People were like, oh that guy who like we all know because that album has just been like gaining steam for four years has a new album coming out yes and also like because that album uh to use an nba mvp term had a very strong narrative around it like uh-huh there, there's a i don't know how much <laughs> like you know. for emma forever ago does yes there's a very oh, well it's like the it's the like exactly what taylor swift tried to do with uh nevermore is that what her you aren't saying so many wrong things at the same time that's making me so mad <laughs> it's the, that's the one though where he was like i'm off to like my cabin in wisconsin to process my heartbreak and i'm recording all the instruments myself and it's all based on my sad poetry about my girlfriend my yes -girlfriend. pretty much and so and so like he was like that was like a big deal and like when this album came out it was like a lot of like most of what the like critical discourse about that album is is about like how he has evolved his sound from the first album right and so right. it's really crazy to be like best new artists <laughs> like this guy who released this album which is like notable because of its departures and similarities to <laughs> his first album style yeah <laughs> And then, like, you have, like, Chance the Rapper winning in 2017 after he's already been established for, like, five years. And if you ask me, it's more like Chance of the Singer. <laughs> Your favorite joke. Or, like, Phoebe Bridgers was nominated last year. Like, Yeah, that's that's a head-scratcher, certainly. There's a lot going on. MG, wait, MGMT in 2010? When did Oracular Spectacular come out? That, that, that doesn't even right. make sense. Like... <laughs> You know, that's correct. They were nominated in 2010. No. That doesn't even make sense because their second album came out in 2010. So it wasn't like they had like a, a quote breakthrough album, which it was not. Nobody know thinks or knows about that album anymore. But yeah. Like it was like two years or three years after their first album came out and they didn't have a new album. They were just like, all right, that's new artist three years later. Yeah. It's like we've heard time to pretend you enough times now. You shouldn't be allowed to win Best New Artist in a year when you didn't even have an album come out. <laughs> that, that would be a good uh, a good rule, I say. Because then at least it's like, like you can use it as kind of shorthand for like Best Breakout Artist. But isn't right. that also a thing? No, not really. But it maybe okay. should be. Wait, 2005 Maroon 5? 
This is I can't so... keep talking about this. this is so <laughs> I can't crazy. keep listening to this. This is crazier than I thought it was. Like again, <laughs> where Songs About Jane was released in 2002, and then they win Best New Artist in 2005. Presumably, like the out for like the music year 2004. <sighs> Forget this love. This freaking segment is taking its toll on me. Uh, so to go back to awards that are relevant to mm-hmm. Paper Girls, the thing we are ostensibly talking about, mm-hmm. Cliff Chang is nominated uh, for Best Penciler Inker. I believe he loses that ultimately. Although, let me let me double check myself. Let me fact check myself quickly. No, he wins that. Best Penciler Inker. Uh, it wins the Harvey Award also for Best New Series, and Brian K. Vaughan wins that year for Best Writer. He's certainly still got, like, the saga juice. Like, there's there's definitely, like, to kind of get back to your question that put us onto that insane 20-minute tangent, like, I do think that there was a period where, you know, I've, I've fetched about his, like, win streak at length already at this point, but... There was a a stretch of years there where he could kind of, like, do no wrong in the eyes of, like, the awards, which, like, I guess that that things like the Oscars and, like, the Emmys and things like that can also fall into, but it feels so, like, singularly around one person rather than around, like, a property or, uh, like, like, I'm thinking of Emmys where, like, one show, like, Ted Lasso, like, sweeps the Emmys or, like, Schitt's Creek sweeps the Emmys. That's, like, a a testament to, like, the collaborative power of the group that, like, put together that season of the show. Vaughn's win streaks feel so centered around, like, just him in a way that feels like embarrassingly small like embarrassingly comics if that makes sense that like it's just the force of this one creator that puts his shine onto like everything that he touches and he just like cleans up for a few years because like it would it would be like someone winning like best director like five straight times for five different movies exactly (laughs) exactly uh but yes so so it did win some awards i definitely think that uh cliff chang is uh, is deserving here he's doing great work i think that matt hollingsworth may have been or sorry matt wilson again i I do get them occasionally mixed up here i do think that matt wilson was nominated for best coloring i'm looking i'm looking i'm wrong uh so big snub there imo uh, and also nothing for Jared K. Fletcher for his lettering. I believe he is an Eisner Award-winning letterer. He's designed the <laughs> logos for a bunch of books uh, as well, which are, by and large, extremely cool, including this logo. Not that, uh, like, I wouldn't say that the logo is necessarily, like, a huge standout here, but it's it's good. It's a cool logo. Sure. I like, uh, and, you know, like, I we didn't even do my famous segment, but I do really oh, yeah, like we have the... It the covers to this book like yeah the covers are awesome yeah very like almost similar to private eye and like they're like the stark monochromatic ism of it yeah although i will say that like i guess through 10 it that's pretty consistent starting with number 11 i'm like looking at the full gallery here on on cliff chang's website but um he will he will move away from that starting with number 10 um 
And there's been ones like the the rest of them have all had kind of like pops of color for the most part. Yeah. Like on number two, Max got like her Walkman is like bright yellow against the sort of pink background. Yeah. Um, and number three, Tiffany's got like a scratch on her knee, stuff like that. But you're right. It is mostly like one color with an accent color and it will it will get more diverse kind of as it goes on here. But it still retains that sort of like, especially 11 through 15 have like an almost sort of like dreamlike quality to them. I agree. <laughs> you can't look at me like you were expecting me to say something there. What do, you, what do you think about that? I think that the I'm reading. I will confess. I'm reading about the Grammy for best new artist. Uh, the Cliff only... Chang draws a kid uh, in 1988 Halloween wearing a pair of Jordan threes, and so best penciler inker just for that. Uh, and that's that's pretty much all I've got to say about that. A pair of Jordan Hashtag 3's trying Forrest to chase Gump. this cash Gucci airbag just in case we crash, as Jay-Z once uh, said. I know he made you a snack like Oscar Proud, like <laughs> Chance the Singer once said. <laughs> this is going so thoroughly off the rails. Um, so allow me to just read this thing that I found interesting. This is, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm deep in a Wikipedia rabbit hole right now. Oh, I'm cutting this all pretty much no matter what, but proceed. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, so, Millie Vanilli, mm-hmm. their, be- their best new artist Grammy, the only Grammy that has ever been vacated. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> huh, you like it now, don't you? <laughs> okay. Uh, because of, you know, about their famous, uh, like, lip syncing yeah. exposure. Uh, yeah. So I was reading about, you know, the famous lip syncing incident and it says in reference to the, you know, it's it's the same as like an Ash or not. It wasn't an Ashley Simpson. It was even better because it was just like the song was skipping. Uh, it says Brown explain, blah, 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 blah. despite the mishap, the concert audience seemed neither to care nor even to notice. And the concert continued as if nothing unusual had happened. <laughs> so, that you know, is crazy. But Does Michael Eisner have any relationship to Will Eisner? I can't imagine so, but we'd better it's make spelled sure. spelled the same, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's just really verify that information. Personal life. Uh, I'm seeing here that one of his sons is named Breck. <laughs> so that's uh, something of note, certainly. Uh, his great-great-grandfather was Sigmund Eisner. Uh, so it's looking like no. Just doing a bit, a bit further research. Yeah, you keep doing that while I hold on, hold on. I'm seeing Eisner and Iger Studio here, with which the founders were Will Eisner and Jerry Iger. Wait, what? Is that true? Okay, that's there crazy. An Eisner and Iger <laughs> was crazy. a comic book packager that produced comic books on demand for publishers in the golden age, including Jack Kirby. Formally titled Eisner and Iger Studios, founded by <laughs> Will Eisner and Jerry Iger. Okay, wait. That is really crazy. Of course, there's an. It's got to be related. There's no way that that's a coincidence. <laughs> okay, okay. Jerry Iger is not related to uh, comic book publisher Fred Iger. He is, however, the great uncle of Walt Disney Company's executive chairman and former CEO Bob Iger. Will Eisner, however, is not related to previous <laughs> Disney CEO Michael Eisner. That is. That's- crazy you know what <laughs> this was all worth it for that that's insane i have like often thought like is there any relationship there 
and assumed no, but the fact that there was an Eisner and Iger studio <laughs> and the Iger was related to Bob Iger, but Will Eisner is not related to, to, to Michael Eisner, that's crazy. But it would, I can't believe But don't you think it would almost be more crazy if it was related? Like Will, no, like Will Eisner like, and, what is it, Jerry Iger? Frank? Bob, yeah, Jerry, Jerry Iger and Will Eisner. It would be crazier if the, it would be crazier if the two if two guys had a comic studio together and both <laughs> of their relatives ended up becoming the CEO of the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> that that is kind of crazy. But at least I could be like, I don't know, like there's a like their family already works in art, like there might be an animation connection, maybe that's like how those two ended up at Disney at some level. I don't know. It's it's, it's quite a coincidence is all I can really say about it. Yes. And of course, it's the kind of fascinating coincidence that will bring us to the blissful and thankful end of this episode. <laughs> uh, if any of you stuck it out, we appreciate you. Uh, please remember to uh, Eister and Iger us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Uh, give us two stars. We love it. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Got the Runs Pod. Send us an email if you like. We might just do a mailbag one of these days. Have you checked the email? I have looked a couple times. Usually when I'm editing episodes and I hear you say email us, I then I'm like, oh yeah, and I go and look. Or no, no, it's when I'm uploading the episodes and say, you can email us. And I'm like, hope nobody has. <laughs> right. So uh, keep it up. <laughs> but, pl- but please yes, do. <laughs> truly, like, if you... Mainly, if you if we started getting emails, I'd check the email more often. If you don't know us personally and you listen to this podcast, please email us because we are. It would literally make our make our days. And I've got a lot of uh, a lot of questions for you. Precisely. Um, what else? Is there anything else? That's it. All right. Until next time. Of yes, course. Until next time. To be, to con- be continued. <laughs> Very sorry about this one, folks. No, I love it. It's great. Bye. Bye.